I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland. And you hated La La Land. But I gotta make you understand They can be profound and beautiful So I need you to like musicals Hey, I'm starting to wonder if I only do this podcast so that I can watch TV during the day. Uh, I used to watch a lot of TV during the day. Mostly movies, actually. VHS tapes, later DVDs, later Roku. And still, Roku. I can't get behind this Apple TV. Anyway, in my 20s, um, that was my default. It was the thing that I wanted to do. Uh, any job I may have had, the uh, when that was over, I gravitated back to the TV. And now I feel very guilty watching TV during the day or even in the evening. Uh, and I, that's probably got something to do with the way I was raised in my house. Ladies and gentlemen, you were a moral failure if you watched TV while the sun was up. That was not allowed. You could have a little, uh, little, uh, trifle at 7.30. You could watch the Simpson rerun of the day, uh, but that was it. So I'm kind of like one of those, uh, people that are raised super Christian and then rebel, uh, go on their rumspringa, and now I'm, uh, made my way back to the, the thing with the TV. Anyway, um... This is tangent took a little longer than I thought it would take. Uh, I'm a little out of practice. The podcast muscles have gone uh, slack. Gone slack? Uh, yeah, sure. They've gone slack. Uh, during these two weeks off. Three weeks off! I apologize. I said I was going to take two weeks off. I took three weeks off. I need to apologize to the podcast community for that. Listen, I'm going through some issues. <laughs> Um, the, the, I did turn 40, that happened, uh, the, the, and, uh, s- somehow, right after I turned 40, it was like, uh, a TV movie. Everything turned upside down. I'm not gonna talk about it, certainly, uh, but know this. There are at least five, uh, life-changing things that may or may not be happening, most of which are reliant on each other. And I'm now in a holding pattern, uh, losing my mind. So uh, this is a welcome distraction today, uh, talking about a couple of pieces of musical theater. Another nice distraction was my visit to the DMV today. Haven't been there in ages. Um, Here's a pro tip if you live in Los Angeles. Um, if you need to go to the DMV, because let's say it's something, your AAA uh, membership, you can't uh, use that for this. Maybe it's renewing your driver's license. Got to go in there, get a new photo. You try to do that at the AAA office. No can do. Got to go directly to the DMV. I'm going to recommend, and don't, don't spread the word on this too much. This is for a select group of you. Go to the DMV in Arlita. Where the fuck is Arlita? Exactly. It's the best kept secret of Los Angeles adjacent DMVs. Arlita is like north, I want to say north of, uh, you know, uh, Sunland and Pacoima and Van Nuys. It's an ill-defined part of the uh, northeast valley. I don't know. Anyway, this doesn't matter to anybody that doesn't live in Los Angeles. But uh, suffice to say, if you do live in Los Angeles uh, and you need some DMV business done, go to Arlita. Um couple of odds and ends here before we uh, get started proper with the shows. Uh, I want, I, I, I'm very late to this, but I went down a rabbit hole of Lindsay Ellis content. And uh, if you're not familiar, 
Lindsay Ellis is a uh, prolific uh, video essayist on the YouTube. Talks a lot about musical theater. Talks a lot about Disney movies, as it turns out. And uh, she had a thing about cats that I am very glad I did not watch before I did my cats episode because it makes me sound like a sloppy Johnny Come Lately um, that didn't bother to do uh, research. Lindsay Ellis, uh, I very much enjoyed that. Uh, she also has a. Uh, okay, uh, not to. She has a podcast about musical theater that I also listen to, and when I first found out what it was, it's called Musical Splaining. And it is, uh, there's, a, there's a free plug for you, Lindsay Ellis, uh, a lot more famous than I am, and I'm giving, I'm, I'm, um, I'm not punching up, what am I? I'm, uh, I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, uh, she's got a podcast called Musical Splaining, and the whole premise is that she, it's her and her friend, and they're both uh, funny and irreverent, and he doesn't like musicals, and she's making him watch them, and they're talking about him. So when I heard about this, I was like, oh, geez. I, that, I, that sounds very much up my alley, but if I listen to it, I think the same thing's going to happen uh, during my crisis of faith in Sondheim on Adderall uh, around the time of the Sunday in the Park with George episode where I'm like, oh, I'm just a hack and everybody's uh, doing this already. I think I'm so fucking original. Now, uh, it's a great podcast. I, I do highly recommend everybody uh, listen to it if they've not heard, it, uh, <laughs> heard of it before. Am I talking fast? Do I need to slow down? No, I don't. I'm not going to go over two hours today. I don't have that kind of time. It's almost Thanksgiving. Um, but the podcast is very different from what I do here, uh, in the sense that she does not like Sondheim and likes Phantom of the Opera a whole lot and, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber in general. And, uh, but I, I did enjoy listening to it. I made a rule for myself. I said I was, I'm only going to download the episodes about musicals that I have already covered on my podcast so that I don't end up uh, being derivative. So I listened to a few of those. Had a, had a, had a nice time. Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar is a good one and, uh, so on. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, today, we're talking about spooky, scary, horror musicals, which I know what you're thinking. Chris, this would have made a lot more sense, let's call it three weeks ago, when Halloween was upon us. Not now, when Halloween is not upon us, and it's almost Turkey Day. Well, you know, I, the, the amount of time it takes for me to watch these things and record this thing and then edit this thing, uh, I don't have that kind of forethought, foresight, forethought, you know, I barely know how to use my fucking Google Calendar unless uh, something gets put on there automatically. I do not uh, plan what I'm going to do more than 48 hours ahead of time, so I fucked that up and you might think, well then why don't you wait till next year, this will be your Halloween episode next year. No, I'm doing it now. Go fuck yourself. Things can be spooky and scary in November, and they're gonna be. Because these are both spooky, scary, horror musicals. They are... Little Shop of Horrors and Jekyll and Hyde. Now, I think both of these shows are in the shadow of the great Sweeney Todd. Now, I did a full episode all about Sweeney Todd earlier this year uh, when this podcast was called something else. It was called Sondheim on Adderall. Now it's called I Need You to Like Musicals, as we all know. Um, so Sweeney Todd, for my money, is the best, if not the only true horror musical. Okay? Now, I am not a connoisseur of the horror genre. I do enjoy a, you know, a really good horror movie, one of the prestige ones. I'm, I'm on board with this Ari Aster kid, <laughs> he's probably older than I am, uh, or my peer, uh, not my peer certainly, but my age group, 
I'm not a horror movie person in the sense that I I, I won't watch them all and uh, only li and like them uh, by virtue of the fact that they are horror movies. Like the people that are like into horror movies have an encyclopedic knowledge and they've seen the really shitty ones and like oh yeah the, 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 no, what is it uh, the Friday the Thirteenth Twelfth. Uh, and they're like, oh, yeah, I know it's bad, but I like it. No, I'm not. I, I enjoy uh, I enjoy the good ones. <laughs> Put it that way. What's interesting, and I was thinking about this. I have a hot take. You guys ready for a hot take? Uh, one of my favorite... I th okay, my favorite. I'll say my favorite horror movie is The Shining. The Shining is, a lot of people would argue, maybe not a horror movie even. And people that are really into horror movies tend to not like The Shining. Maybe because they're Stephen King uh, devotees, and he doesn't like it, and they don't consider it uh, a faithful enough for a adaptation of Stephen King. I think it's interesting, because so Sweeney Todd is made by Stephen Sondheim, who is also not a master of horror. It's like his one horror project. Yet, uh, I think it's the best, if not the only, horror musical. The two that we're going to talk about today, you know, one of them is uh, tongue-in-cheek. Right, and the other one is a failure. <laughs> I don't know what to, I don't know what it is. I guess it's trying. Both of them want to be scary, and I, b both of them are in moments. But Sweeney Todd is the, the the only musical with a true like horror movie spirit. I think. If you disagree, go ahead and stick it up your ass, because we're going to talk about these two shows now and. This is another situation, before we get into it, just so you're not at the edge of your seat wondering, uh, is this going to be a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Um, I, I do not need you to like either of these, and I like aspects of both of these. That's kind of a running theme, as it turns out. I know that I promised that I would uh, get more positive and that I would get to Town, which, again, I think is one of the best musicals of the past, whatever, whatever, but... Um, and uh, I, I, I did I, I trotted out Pippin because I love Pippin and I was like let me let me give the uh, let me give the people some positivity. We're gonna take a little dip into uh, snark here, I think. But the good news is we're gonna get the most of the snark out of the way in the first half, talking about the show that you probably did not come here to listen to a podcast about because it's the least popular of the two. It's Jekyll and Hyde. Sorry, little shop heads, you're going to have to wait 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, don't hold me to that. I have no idea how long it will take. But again, can't necessarily go over two hours. But we're only 10 minutes in, so anything can happen. It's anything can happen day on I Need You To Like Musicals. Jekyll and Hyde, the musical, 1990. Now, the great, <laughs> the great Alexander Schulzenitsyn said the following thing. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts inside us. It oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. Now, I like this quote. I am a person who tends toward uh, being more sympathetic with Marxist ideals, so I'm not predisposed to agree with an Alexander Shulzenitsyn, but I do like this quote, and I think it's a good guiding light morally to most situations, to uh, global and conflicts, and even dumb, stupid 
culture war conflicts, which uh, us here in the West are more uh, versed in lately than uh, any real conflicts. And by the way, when I say I like Marxism, please know that I try to keep in mind that I, I have never personally lived in a communist or socialist country. I'm one of the few people with a that got the lucky draw in the capitalist superpower land where I have the luxury to opine about such things. Um, but also, and, and also, I, I did go to the DMV today, which is enough to make somebody wary of socialism overall. Uh, but I am a beardy, flannel-wearing socialism bro, and I am sorry to be a stereotype, and who cares. Jekyll and Hyde is what this is about, and uh, Jekyll and Hyde is very concerned with good and evil in a very simplistic, binary, uh, Patrick Swayze's character in Donnie Darko kind of way. Fear and love. Horrible book and lyrics, okay? Which invalidates some very good uh, music. <laughs> uh, and it, this is a lesson, I think. This is a portrait of how a musical can fail overall with a bad uh, lyricist and book writer. That uh, a pretty melody is not enough. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Andrew Lloyd Webber, you can't just coast by on this Tim Rice bullshit. And Frank Wildhorn, come on, man. There's some pretty melodies in there. Why did we have to couple it with such schlocky, trite shit? <sighs> Jekyll and Hyde. Um, I think that this is the, 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 the offshoot, the final stages of the boom in the 80s of the Les Mis style musical. And this, of course, came out in the 90s, uh, made it to Broadway in 97, uh, concept album in 1990. And here's something else I've said before, and uh, let me quote myself narcissistically here. Uh, I have said, to quote the, the great Chris, the host of uh, Need You To Like Musicals, uh, th that musical theater sucked in the 90s a little bit. Uh, there was not. There was a lack of uh, innovation, particularly in the mid to late '90s, which mirrors what happened in other genres and mediums. You know, I think popular music kind of took a shit in the late '90s, didn't it? People were resor people resorted to rapping over heavy metal, and they're like, I don't know, what's the next thing? You know, and then uh, the, the early 2000s, the Strokes and the White Stripes came and started another thing. That's I don't know about any of that. I don't know, but uh, but also there's a parallel with stand-up comedy. Remember the stand-up comedy boom of the 80s? I don't because I was seven when the 80s were over, but I've heard tell that uh, stand-up comedy was very big and everyone was building comedy clubs. And then in the 90s, uh, it just sort of died down. And then in the early 2000s, uh, alternative comedy kind of uh, brought things back and now it's big again. But my point is, um, this is a very specific style of musical that there are that has a very specific fan base. It's similar to the Les Mis crowd, that this is their way of cutting loose after their Don Giovanni rehearsal with something with a bit of a pop flavor. And they feel like, ooh, oh, this is living dangerously. It's a dangerous game when they listen to Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, and you know, all of these shows, or at least let's say some of them, they have good elements to them. Uh, but Jekyll and Hyde is a net negative. I will, I'll tell you that much. It, it's overall, it is uh, crushingly dull. And the thing is, 
I think these style, these kinds of musicals, the Lame is model, like they, they, they're they're trying to be the new American opera, but they can't quite do what opera does. And let me tell you something: I don't really know what opera does. Like uh, I, 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 I think that uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe they do do what opera does because I don't know what opera does. I mean, I'm not going to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and sitting through an opera myself. I respect opera. I've been very clear that I don't care for opera people, um, to quote myself again. I am nothing if not consistent. Say what you will about me, but uh, I'm consistent. The thing about shows like this, Lame is Miss Saigon, Jekyll and Hyde, Secret Garden. That's another one. Like Secret Garden. Okay, uh, that's another example. It's in the 90s. It's going off of that model of the long dirge that's very, very, very serious. And there are costumes that are period costumes. Um, the thing is, if you don't take the time to develop characters on any level, then having a show where you watch them soliloquize in these long, gravely serious songs is a fate worse than death to the audience. It's it's that you put your audience in prison. Maybe it's all right to listen to the soundtrack. I don't know. Uh, but 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 also where where are you listen to that soundtrack? Unless you're me in high school and you're in your room uh, singing along to "This Is the Moment" in your uh, boombox, like you're not going to put on "This Is the Moment" at a party or in a car. So what are you doing? What's the point of this? So anyway, Jekyll and Hyde. Um, can I tell you something interesting? This musical is huge in South Korea. I don't know why. They seem to know what they're doing in South Korea. Why do they like this musical so much? If I have any South Korean fans or people that uh, have been to South Korea and uh, know a lot about why this might appeal to people in South Korea, I would love to know. Uh, uh, first of all... I love hearing from you. <laughs> I love uh, getting communications from the I Need You To Like Musicals nation. And I don't even, I'm not saying that sarcastically. It's uh, very good for my uh, constantly inflating and deflating ego. It helps to keep in the uh, inflated position. So uh, keep those emails coming. So especially if you have an answer to the South Korea business. Is that pathetic, guys? Am I pathetic? Anyway, um, the music to Jekyll and Hyde is written by Frank Wildhorn. This is his first musical. He was a pop songwriter. He wrote a Whitney Houston song, Where Do Broken Hearts Go? I'm sure that if I played that on the old Spotify, I would know what song that was, but I did not bother to do that, although I did put an asterisk by this in my notes, reminding myself to do that. I didn't, though. Uh, He never got anywhere near the notoriety of this musical, and this musical didn't really, like, set the world on fire. You know, it, it, it got bad reviews, but it ran for a while. But he never eclipsed this first one. People seem to like the Scarlet Pimpernel. Listen, I don't have the energy, frankly. I've heard a little of the soundtrack when I was in high school in somebody's fucking house. They, that I, do, 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 do the Scarlet Pimpernel. No, thank you. I'm good. Also, he wrote a musical called The Civil War that apparently when he did the concept album, Hootie and the Blowfish were involved. I'm good. I don't need to... Uh, I'm good. Now, this show, Jekyll and Hyde, has a million drafts. And I can't even keep track, honestly, of which version has which version of what song. 
You know, like there's a couple of songs that are interchangeable. I don't know how it is when you buy the rights, if you're supposed to. I know that, uh, yeah, so I, I didn't also, I didn't dig into that because I didn't care. I will talk about a couple of the songs that are not in the official version, but also what is the official version? I don't know. <laughs> there's a lot of Jekyll and Hyde content out there. That's a uh, bad sign, I think, if there are t- tons of drafts of a musical. There's uh, you know, if they didn't at least get it mostly right the first time. So they do the old trick of they make a demo and then a concept album before it's ever on stage. They're trying to be all cool like Andrew Lloyd Webber because they're definitely in the shadow of him. Um, and, of course, also in the shadow of Sweeney Todd, uh, but not nearly as uh, smart as Sweeney Todd, uh, but definitely as uh, melodramatic as Andrew Lloyd Webber. They make a fatal error when they, at some stage of this, I think after the concept album, they make the unspeakable mistake of hiring Leslie Briscus to come on and write the book and lyrics. Now, I don't want to speak ill of the dead. Leslie Briscus is a legend. We just lost him. Um, he, he's got a lot of uh, talents. He, he sucks at writing lyrics. He's very bad at writing lyrics. The lyrics in this musical are distractingly bad. And I don't mean that in this way of uh, me being a nitpicker uh, trying to be like Sondheim's uh, the, finishing the hat book where if you say your looks are laughable, unphotographable, he says, uh, only vampires are unphotographable. I think you mean photogenic. Uh, I think that anybody, I think that even, I, you know, my grandmother would listen to this and be like, these are bad lyrics. It is obvious. And it's strange because, so this guy writes music and lyrics over his long multi-era uh, career. And I will tell you, I love the movie musical Scrooge more than anything. That is my favorite Christmas movie. I love the... The songs are good. I mean, I've been watching it since I was a little child, and so maybe I wouldn't feel that way if I saw it for the first time, but come on with the thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. Uh, He worked a lot with Anthony Newley, of course. Their big thing at first was stop the world, I want to get off. And I, I understand, people seem to think that that's good. I guess my parents liked that. I don't know anything about it. I defy you to name me one song from that goddamn thing, stop the world, I want to get off. Tell me one hit song from that. I'll wait. So uh, he wrote music and lyrics, but uh, when he writes lyrics, the lyrics are weak. They're bloodless. They're empty. They're boring. But also, perhaps most importantly, like amateurish they sound like they were written like if somebody in high school if your friend had a child that was in high school and they played a song that they'd written and they the the lyrics sounded like this you'd be like oh that's cute this is supposed to be this uh you know professional uh, legend this leslie briscus and i wonder if it's because he had such a storied career nobody on the team was willing to challenge him on these things um, just incessantly weird rhyming and that thing, which is like, just to force in a rhyme, it makes you talk in a way that nobody would talk, and it makes you say sort of general Hallmark card type language all the way through. That's what this thing suffers from, man. Hallmark card lyrics. We'll talk about it. Now, he did do the songs on Willy Wonka with Anthony Newley, and those songs are fine. But let's be honest, you don't watch Willy Wonka for the songs. They're, they're okay. In a world of pure imagination, all right. I mean, outside of that, you know, that uh, scary song in the boat is the good, but that, you know, that's just because of the orchestrations and because of the, the way they filmed it, right? 
you don't uh, go into this uh, with these uh, being a huge fan of the songs. This is what I'm trying to say. I want a feast. I want a bean feast. Okay, dude. Anyway, the book uh, of this musical is nothing like the source material, the book by Robert Louis Stevenson. I mean, it's a little bit like it, but it's the, the story is quite different. Uh, in the book, the, in the, the late 19th century book by Robert Louis Stevenson, the fact that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are the same person is this big M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end, uh, whereas here we kind of know that uh, as we go along. We know that halfway through the first act. And we know that because we've lived on the planet for uh, long enough to have heard of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as a phenomenon. Um, I'll hear a couple of reviews of Jekyll and Hyde. The New York Daily News said, quote, Jekyll and Hyde is an over-the-top bloody hoot. At times, it's like a theme park attraction, but it's got a saving grace. The show doesn't take itself too seriously as it power ballads its way through Victorian-era London. What do you think about that, Elaine Stritch? Run! Yeah, I agree. This thing takes itself so seriously. What show was that person watching? To say this thing doesn't take itself too seriously. That's how you could uh, talk about the Little Shop of Horrors in the second half of the show, uh, the podcast here. But this sh- this is the most serious, dour, joyless... There are there is exactly one part one line you're supposed to laugh at in this thing. But let's look at another review though. Um, Variety said, uh, "Quote: Jekyll and Hyde has half the personality of its title character, and it's the dour, humorless half. Despite a handful of big-bodied pop ballads that push their way through a dense operatic score, this much-traveled musical quickly settles into a self-serious sameness. A self-serious sameness." that pretty much drains the well-known horror tale of whatever guilty pleasures lurk within. What do you think of that review, cast of Merrily We Roll Along? Right, 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 right! Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's uh, the, the new uh, part of the show now, is uh, whenever I quote reviews, I'm going to uh, tag it with uh, one of those two things. Now, um, if you uh, are listening to this podcast because you know me, you're a friend of mine, and uh, let's say you were a friend of mine in the year 2012, then you know what Jekyll and Hyde uh, means to me. Uh, I was in a regional production of Jekyll and Hyde in the title Rolls. But before this happened, though, I did hear it in high school uh, around the musical theater kids. This was a CD that was in rotation. I liked This Is The Moment. I thought the transformation was cool, the first one. I thought that the confrontation was cool. But I didn't think it was like world moving or anything. I didn't think it was great. Uh, eventually, I did at a friend's house watch the DVD of the <laughs> film stage version with David Hasselhoff, which is wow. I mean, if you want an entry point to this, that's the one to watch. But you, if you are going into this... Uh, trying to give it a chance, then you need to suspend your disbelief a little bit and try to remove David Hasselhoff's performance from your consciousness. And imagine, like, what if somebody that wasn't a space alien uh, played this part? And I, I, uh, I, I like uh, David Hasselhoff. He's he's fine. I, he, but in this is uh, there's a couple of little clips uh, that I I wish that I could have uh, isolated if this were a video podcast. Show you. He's like, oh, dear God, when he first uh, starts to, anyway. And then his curtain call at the end, the swagger. 
with which he comes back on stage at the end of the show. And then he makes a little speech after the curtain call where he's like, hey, what, did you like the show? <laughs> he says, uh, tell your friends about it. And then at some point he says, I've come a long way from the beach and the talking car. Okay, yeah. Baywatch was a little before my time. I remember everybody uh, in elementary school uh, talked about it as like it was a, a punchline because people were aroused by uh, Pamela Anderson, and I know that he was in there. And uh, So, yeah, I was in it in 2012. I was 28 years old, and in a lot of ways, <laughs> this is the most pathetic. I- I'm coming off pathetic in this episode. It was like the apex of my youth, and uh, I think I can say that now that I am now comfortably 40 or uncomfortably 40. The my youth is arguably now over. That was uh, that was the high water mark, uh, and I. But I also, like, I went full Icarus, and I really like playing this part. Uh, these parts, Jekyll and Hyde. Like, I, I really started to believe my own bullshit because people were saying nice things to me and treating me a certain way. And uh, let me be really pathetic. Like, let me be really vulnerable here because I feel like uh, nobody actually ever says this out loud. But like, when you do a show. No matter what level you're doing it on, like it could be uh, on a big stage, it could be on a community theater stage, it could be in high school. Like there is some little part of you that thinks that your performance in that show is going to change things and that, uh, you know, you're going to be scooped up and become a superstar and that Guffman is going to come watch it and you keep a seat open for him. And then it just turns out it's a guy from the uh, whatever. And, uh,. People were saying shit to me like during this, and I was, uh, you know, it was a weird part of point in my life. Um, and I also, I was not very nice at a certain point too. I think I, uh, I broke up with uh, the person I was dating over the phone at the cast party because someone was hitting on me. Look, uh, listen, that uh, give me a break. It's twelve years ago. I'm trying to be better in general, uh, but uh, you know, I uh, when when that thing was over. I had a horrific come down from it, that, sh- uh, that show. And you kind of always do. Uh, people call it the community theater depression. And I think, yeah, the higher you go, the harder you fall. And that's, uh, I-, I went up real high. And then I, cr- like when I didn't, when I was not scooped up and uh, did not uh, get nominated for an ovation award or have people uh, carry me on their shoulders all the way to, uh, La Mirada uh, in Broadway to give me parts. Uh, I, I I struggled a little bit, so uh, there you go, everybody. Um, if you if if this is resonant to you on any level, again, hey, write me, send me an email. I appreciate hearing from you. Oh God, everything's fine, guys. Everything's fine. This episode makes me sound like I'm at the end of my rope, but I, I feel great. I got, I, I'm got i dog sitting. I just had a delicious energy drink, and uh, I get to make a nice dinner for myself later. So um, while I was in Jekyll and Hyde in 2012, I was profoundly poor. I don't think I've – well, I've it, it, that was the last time in my life when I had been like poor to the level of like I do not have $5. If I had a $5 emergency, I would have been out of luck. Uh, this was before the end of the equity waiver contract thing. I was not equity, but I would be in a lot of equity waiver shows. And that's where they the minimum that they can pay you, which is normally what they do pay you, is $11 of performance and $0 for rehearsals, uh, which is essentially gas money. I was living off of that during Jekyll and Hyde. I had no other income and no savings. 
And I would feed myself uh, with 99 cents at the McDonald's down the street before the show. And I was just under five years sober. And I think I was really interested in exploring, interested in exploring um, the recovery, <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous angle of Jekyll and Hyde. Because they do talk about Jekyll and Hyde in the old uh, large book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I should tell you also, this is a year before that revival with Constantine Margulis, Margolis, Margaulis, the American Idol contestant, the rocker, the one that was not Bo Bice, but he was the same season as Bo Bice. You know what I mean? Constantine, creep, long wavy hair. Let's get into it. Um, the show itself, Jekyll and Hyde, it's got a weird prologue. There's a, a dude, uh, Jekyll, he's on stage. And he's next to a patient, an old man patient uh, under a blanket. And he sings, Lost in the Darkness. And it's a weird prologue. Because uh, it's, it's immediately very uh, morose. And Henry Jekyll, this doctor, he states his objective. And his objective is very strange. <laughs> he wants to... And it's also, like, not very clear. He wants to get to the bottom of why there is good and evil in every man. <laughs> but what does he want to do? Like, how does he want to do that? What's, what's he going to do when he does that? Like, is he going to... Are we going to stomp out the evil somehow? Are we going to be all good? And then if we do that, is there going to... Isn't there just going to be a vacuum where there's going to be a new form of evil? Is this moral relativism? I don't know. I am not uh, educated. But that song, Lost in the Darkness, we, when I did it, we replaced it with a song from an earlier draft that the director was a big fan of called I Need to Know, which essentially says the same thing, but a little bit longer <laughs> and a little bit beltier. I need to know why man plays this strange double game. Jekyll is on the uh, original cast recording is played by a man named Robert Cuccioli, and he is very good. I'm going to tell you that. There are two or three moments on the album that are very worth listening to because of the vocal prowess of Robert Cuccioli and also just the way that and the way that he does the Hyde voice and the Jekyll voice. Uh, it's very good the way that he does that. Um, I will tell you that I did not know what I was doing when it came to doing that Hyde voice. And I did it all through rehearsals and I was able to, you know, hit those high notes as Jekyll and then turn into turn into Hyde and do a lot of this. And everything was totally fine until Tech Week. And then uh, my voice uh, kind of was burnt to the ground and I had to basically uh, do the show all weekend long and then spend the week not saying very many words and uh, having a lot of Manuka honey and tea. So uh, there's probably some sort of, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of vocal technique. I didn't really uh, grow up with voice lessons. So uh, who gives a shit what I think? The Hoff, uh, David Hasselhoff, uh, he, like I said, in this video, which used to be on Broadway HD, and I was not on there anymore, so I watched it on YouTube. Check this thing out on YouTube. It's from like the year 2000, year 2001. Um. I guess I mostly know about David Hasselhoff because of that YouTube video that came out of him in the early days of YouTube where it was all just about uh, mean-spirited fun and uh, where he's drunk. And if you think about that now, like uh, the, the, the thing about that, mo that video was 
he was drunk on the floor with his shirt off eating a burger and one of his kids was filming him to show him how uh, how he'd hit rock bottom. And then somehow that ends up on YouTube. I don't know like who put it on YouTube or if that kid put it there or if somebody stole it. But like uh, how, how mean that we all thought that was so funny, even though it is. It is very funny. But what uh, the culture sure has changed. I think that you, people would yell at you now for laughing at that video because it's somebody in their most uh, desperate moment and it's it, it's depressing it's depre- it was depressing at the time but also funny because the burger he's like this is a mess I liked it at the time I'm an asshole the song facade uh, the ensemble comes out after this weird prologue the ensemble sings facade and this fucking facade theme continues all the way through it wants to be the ballad of Sweeney Todd but it's nowhere near and the whole it's not a novel concept that oh everybody is behind a facade and men are not one but two oh there's two inside of them and the thing like the staging of this is so musicalish and irritating the way everybody's vibe how they just sort of like are like their their stance like it looks like it's a parody of a musical they're like oh yes evil yes oh yes hmm, facade behind the facade e naughty evil <laughs> and like i said they they tell you a trillion times in this thing through uh, i need to know slash lost in the darkness everything that jekyll says uh, the facade, the good and evil that Lucy sings later, like this fucking dividing line between good and evil. It's just, it's a dumb oversimplification that all of your thoughts and actions are either good and evil. It's like, uh, I, I, I'm not a scientist and I have not uh, looked this up. I just remember being told this in middle school. Maybe they figured out this isn't true either. But I, apparently they used to think that the human tongue had regions that uh, did the, the, the different uh, tastes. Like the, 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 you could only taste bitterness at a certain part of your tongue and saltiness at one part and sweetness at another part. And then they found out later, no, no, these taste receptors are all mixed in. Like some of them do trend in one area. Like there's some, like most of the saltiness is at the front of the tongue. But uh, that's like, that's, that's what this is. There's, it's not, people are not, don't have a little angel and a little devil inside of them. They have all kinds of complex feelings and emotions that are, oh God. Even my uh, debunking of this is an oversimplification and is uh, tiresome. But that's the theme here, guys. And over and over and over again. Also, Jekyll seems to think that uh, insanity is the same thing as evil. Like he wants to use someone from the asylum. Well, he wants to test on his father. I don't know if they, they don't really say if his father is like criminally insane, but he's just insane and under a blanket. They keep talking about what a great man he was. And it's like, oh, I have to get to the bottom of this for my father. So is that, is that how that works? Like if you are of sound mind, then that, that is moral good. And then if you are insane, then you're, that's, it's because you're evil. The mind rebels because of evil. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I'm insane. I don't get it. This is uh, kind of glossed over, but we should uh, let's not forget that Jekyll does animal testing. He admits it. He's tested. He tests on animals. Uh, what do you think of that, Peta? Okay, well, nothing from Peta, but um, yeah, Jekyll does say in his speech to his uh, funders or whoever the fuck they are, the people at the hospital. After testing this on animals, it's time to do it on a human, and he wants to test it on an inmate from the. Uh, Asylum. 
because the evil equals crazy. Um, and that whole scene, the musicality of that scene, uh, again, it's it, it it feels like a Simpsons. Par- a lot of this feels like a Simpsons parody of a musical, like the uh, Streetcar Named Desire thing that they did, where they all of the people when he's there, they all go sacrilege, lunacy, blasphemy, heresy. It's so corny. Um, and then when they reject his proposal to test his drugs on a human uh, inmate. He says, oh, you've just provided justification for my work because everyone who doesn't agree with me is uh, evil. And if you're afraid slash angry, that means you're evil because that's anything negative equals, that's right, evil. And then they go, nay, 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 absolutely, positively, nay, when they vote him out or they vote against him. And then we change our scene, and he's like, well, he decides to test on himself. Or maybe he does that later. Yeah, he does that later. But then it goes into his engagement party, and he's late. Uh, Dr. Jekyll's tardy for his own engagement party. And we meet a very uh, two-dimensional, pointless uh, female lead, uh, one of them, one of two. Emma Carew, who, uh, you know, yeah, where are my feminists at? What do we think about Emma Carew, huh? Emma Carew, who is uh, cool and supportive and loves him no matter what and uh, never really, uh, you know, says boo to anybody uh, or has really any uh, character characteristics other than uh, lovely and uh, supportive. And she sings, take me as I am, or they do, together. And this is the first example of something that happens all the way through. Uh, Wildhorn and Briscus, and I blame Briscus probably because he's the old uh, veteran here. They're trying to do like a golden age thing where they make all of the hit songs in the show very general. So that they can sell them to, I don't know, like a Michael Bolton type some sort of ballad singer, like in the old days um, when Julie Stein argued with Sondheim when they were writing Gypsy, uh, when he wrote the, Sondheim wrote the lyric, uh, funny, I'm a woman with children, small world, isn't it? And Julie Stein says, well, now a man can't sing it when we sell the song and it's played on the radio, but Frank Sinatra can't sing it. I don't know if Julie Stein talks that way. But uh, that's that's what we're working with here on these songs. Like every time it gets to like a big song that's not, you know, story point stuff or recitative or moving stuff forward. The song where it's like we're sitting still to sing a big song. It always just <laughs> just becomes as general as possible. This is the first example of that. Take me as I am. Lazy uh, general love song with bad lyrics like across the horizon. Da, 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 I'll keep my eyes on. Shut up, bad. I didn't mention also. Um, this is a model of society, propriety and piety, who shudders at the thought of notoriety. That's in the facade song. That's another bad one. I take a notes of the bad ones. There are a lot of bad lyrics in this show. I said it before, and I'll continue to say it as uh, I, I'm going to call them out. I'm going to speak truth to power. Idiot. So, um, yeah, give me your hands. Give me your heart. Swear to me we'll never part. Okay, that's a ninth grader. That's something that a ninth grader wrote in their composition notebook. And then this Emma and her father, like it's, uh, there's a, again, lazy. Like the, the, we need to establish that 
Emma's father is a nice old man and that they he loves his daughter and his daughter loves her him and it's just it's uh insulting <laughs> to an audience that it's just uh all right we're setting this up so that later it's uh, means something to you um and then of course we have to have we 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 just had the uh supportive uh, soprano woman we got to bring in our hooker with a heart of gold we got to bring in Lucy and uh yeah, my God. It was just so stupid. It was really bad. Uh, you know, and the songs are good. And I know Linda Etter uh, originated the role. And I, she was dating Frank Wildhorn, I think, uh, and then married him in 98. But And I, he modeled the score. Uh, he crafted it to her vocal pyrotechnics because she's got a very cool uh, voice uh, and range and a great belt. Good belting from Linda Etter. But yeah, nothing. This is a nothing character. We know exactly who this is the minute we see her and then she never changes and it sucks. And she works at the place called the Red Rat. And like the pimp that's in charge of all of them is named Spider. It sucks. And then she's talking about she went down to hear the people do political speeches and they say, don't fill your head with all that rubbish, all that learning. Come on. Like this is written by AI, this fucking thing. Or it could have been, you know? Before the AI didn't know how to do that yet in 1997. But, uh, and then her big song that she sings after her No One Knows Who I Am, a dull song called No One Knows Who I Am, um, she gets up on stage and does, uh, I guess it's like a stripper cabaret. Like, it seems like it's a whorehouse, but it's more of a cabaret where they perform a song and dance to it. And sometimes it's a song called Bring On The Men, and sometimes it's a song called Good and Evil. When we did it, it was Bring On The Men, which is highly preferable because good and evil sucks. Because first of all, we've heard this a million times already about the good and evil, and it's only 30 minutes into the show. Second of all, you don't want your stripper to philosophize. Like, I came here to get away from work. I've been working on this good and evil science. Uh, can you just, uh, d- d- you know, do a dance and show me some cleavage? Uh, d- please don't tell me your views on good and evil. Anyway, uh, we didn't talk about John Utterson. Uh, John Utterson, concerned baritone. That's uh, what we can call him. That's basically his only role is to be Henry Jekyll's friend. And, oh, Henry, you have come too far. Consider what you have at stake. He spends the whole show just, Henry, haven't this, hasn't this gotten a little out of control? Henry, that's all he does. Um, well, funny thing is, so the, after they go to the, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to call it a strip club, but I, I guess it's a whorehouse cabaret. I don't understand. But he, when he, when, uh, Utterson walks Jekyll home, Utterson tells his butler pool, he says, Hey, make sure you get some rest. Okay. He's, he's all stressed out. Make sure you get some rest tonight. And then right after Utterson leaves pool says, uh, Hey, you need anything else? Am I good? Am I off? And he's like, yeah, see you later pool. Uh, I didn't notice that before uh, until watching it, uh, this time. Um, but he does before he, he does tell him about his father that his mind and spirit were strong because it wasn't evil yet I guess and so he makes the decision to whatever uh, take the drugs himself uh, experiment on himself and he sings this is the moment da da do dee this is the moment damn all the odds this day or never that was loud ooh that looks really loud in the uh, the sound here sorry about that Maybe this whole podcast is being recorded too loud. If this is hurting your ears, uh, sorry. But again, uh, Hallmark card lyrics. 
let's recite them. Let me tell you. So tell me if any of this tells you anything about what's happening in the scene. This is the moment, this is the day when I send all my doubts and demons on their way. And every endeavor I have made ever is coming into play is here and now today. This is the moment, this is the time that the momentum and the moment are in rhyme. Giving this moment, this precious chance, I'll gather up my past and make some sense at last. This is the moment when all I've done, all of this scheming, hold on. <laughs> all of the dreaming, scheming, and screaming become one. This is the day, see it sparkle and shine, when all I've lived for becomes mine. For all these years, I've faced the world alone. But now the time has come to sh prove to them I've made it on my own. This is the moment. My final test, destiny beckoned, I never reckon second best. I won't look down, I must not fall. This is the moment, the greatest moment of them all. This is the moment, damn all the odds, this day or never, I'll sit forever with the gods. When they look back, when I look back, I will always recall moment for moment. This was the moment, the sweetest moment of them all. That song could be about anything. That was my point in reciting all those lyrics. Uh, from memory, by the way. Um, if uh, if you were impressed by that. Uh, that, that yeah, that's... Uh, like I said, they're trying to just have it be insertable. But boy, does it speed bump a musical. If you have that right in the middle of it. Even though it's very catchy. And it's the song people like. And it's a song that uh, Chris sang a couple of times at the restaurant at which he's a singing waiter and prayed to God that nobody that uh, knew him circa 2012 that was in that show with him or saw that show uh, happens to be in the restaurant that night because they will think that it is a sad, sad uh, Sunset Boulevard moment where uh, Chris can't let go of Jekyll and Hyde. So, um, I mean, it's hard to be excited for Jekyll in this moment because he's been whining the whole first 30, 40 minutes of the show. And also, why is this the moment? Does this need to be the moment? It's just because he has a wild hair up his ass. He decided it was the moment. He's putting so much on this. I mean, you could I mean, you could decide in that moment to experiment on yourself and then give it a couple days. Get ready. Certainly get some chains for your uh, labs. You chain yourself up just in case you want to turn into a murderer once you take this uh, serum. Which, by the way, I didn't uh, make a note of this, but in the uh, version that we s did, uh, it was different than the Hasselhoff and maybe the original where he injects himself with a needle. We had it in a little beaker. I drank it. <laughs> I don't know if that was... Anyway, um, the, the scene where he injects himself, uh, that shit takes forever to get going. And it's not like... And it, there's no suspense because he's he's saying practically nothing while he's doing it. And he's doing so very slowly. Leading me out of the darkness and into the light, <laughs> you know. Um, and then when he does start to transform, it is one of the coolest parts of the show. It is one of the highlights. But Bob Cuccioli does very good. Uh, if, you if you listen to nothing else, listen to First Transformation on the original cast recording. But do yourself a favor and skip the first half of it because you're going to hear some bullshit. You're going to hear that boring stuff I just told you about. What was supposed to happen, by the way? Like, what exactly was supposed to happen, to Jekyll, when you took that? Like, what did you expect that you were going to, uh, you know? Like I said, you should have taken a moment, if I may, to uh, put some safeguards in place. You know, like Mike Birbiglia, when he uh, goes to sleep in a hotel, he brings a sleeping bag that he up to his neck uh, so that he doesn't uh, sleepwalk his way out a window. Uh, and, uh, you know what I mean? And uh, the only laugh line in the entire show happens here because uh, well, before the transformation where he takes this, uh, injects it, 
And then he goes, a slight feeling of euphoria. <laughs> no noticeable behavioral differences. <laughs> uh, and David Hasselhoff uh, makes it a, a meal of that, of course. And uh, so that's the only laugh in the show. The audience does laugh. Uh, you can hear them in the audience <laughs> when you watch it. And then that is followed by an unintentional laugh, or at least mine, uh, when Hasselhoff does it. Because he's just like going about his business. And then he goes, oh, dear God. Uh, and I can't, I, that's the second time I've done an imitation of it here, and I, I'm not doing it justice. Uh, check it out on YouTube. I wish I could uh, give you a timestamp for this. It's very funny. It should go side by side with uh, him uh, having that burger. Like, th that should be, there should be a video series of, uh, no, there shouldn't. And again, the whole, uh, it's like the Simpsons parody of Streetcar Named Desire, where it's like, oh, what if there was a musical of, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? There's something inside me, a breathtaking pain, devours and consumes me, and drives me insane! It's like, it's very silly. But again, it does take itself seriously, even though it's silly. Apparently, evil in this show means to not comb your hair. That's the primary difference between Jekyll and Hyde here, is that his hair is not combed. It's all stringy and hanging down. And he's got like a, a what's his name, a, a Slash hat on, like the guy Slash from the rock and roll band. <laughs> now, let me, let me ask you a question. Why does he have a new name? Where did the name Edward Hyde come from? Like, why, does it, why does the evil side of him have this fake name? Do, do we all do, do, does all do all of our evil uh, inner demons have names that just sound like regular names of human beings? Like I know in the book it was because it was supposed to be a surprise at the end that they were the same guy, but why the fuck does he say I'm Edward Hyde? Very stupid. And then just some terrible uh, uh, rhyming poison in here, as Sondheim would call it. Just, what is this feeling of power and drive? Da, 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 da. I feel alive. Where does this feeling of power derive? Uh, like the night it's a secret. Da, 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 da. I do not know what I seek yet. It sucks, dude. Um, now, let me tell you what the review said about me when I played Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, first of all, raves <laughs> um i got good reviews but when i didn't get good reviews uh people said that i was very good uh, as half successful because the hide was great and the jekyll a little uh a little stiff and i think part of that was uh, the fact that uh the voice was gone for a lot of those performances but also uh you know uh i'm not a trained actor I say that, but I mean, I, I who cares? The and the alive part. This was, uh, you know, this it's not a great song, but uh, the mania of that Hasselhoff doesn't really pull this off. Uh, you know, apologies to David Hasselhoff, but like, uh, I think the idea of just the rush of mania. Um, I think that maybe uh, I was good at that because that's like in me a little bit. And I know that there's no need to pathologize everything in our lives, but uh, I, I tend to get a rush when there's conflict. Uh, like I was dating a woman for a long time and I would go see her family and everything was very polite and uh, buttoned up. And then there was this one holiday where we were there where there was trouble. And as soon as the trouble started and people started fighting, um, like I would like I, I, I realized like I like woke up. I was like, oh, here we go. This is a holiday. Uh, therapy, therapy, Chris. This is uh, not cool. So yeah, alive. Uh, he does the whole thing. Chris ruins his voice. Going like this, sinister, dark, and unknown. Um, 
And then there's a quartet. Okay, fine, cool. You know, uh, it, it feels suited to an opera, that quartet. With the, You've got to work and nothing more. You are possessed. It is your demon. And then the lady comes in and then the old man comes in and then Jekyll comes in. Uh, oh, his work's a crime to be forgiven. I don't know what that rhymes with, but no one would ever say that. She's because he say her dad's saying uh, he works too much, and she says his work's a crime to be forgiven. Why are you talking that way? That's weird. Lucy comes in because she has this card, and she's like, "Hey, you said if I ever needed any help, and apparently somebody uh, ripped up her back, uh, some uh, tough client, and uh, so he's treating her wounds as a doctor would, uh, but he's all fucked up because he's you know in between Hyde episodes." And she sings sympathy, tenderness, a, a stupid song. And then she, you know, kisses him out of fucking nowhere. Uh, and it's uh, very rushed and lazy because they're like, okay, we need them to fall in love r- real quick. We cannot have uh, any scene where they get to know each other. We just need uh, to communicate that he's the first person that's been nice to her. She loves him, kisses him. Great. Done. Um... And she sings "Someone Like You," which is a—it's uh, a good song. And if you're pl- the guy playing uh, Jekyll and Hyde, that is your first time you can rest. And uh, I remember I—I I went, I went off stage and I—I I, I was sweating balls. Uh, my body mic—they uh, had to construct some new uh, device for me to have a body mic on because the old mic tape was not doing the trick because I was sweating it off left and right. And um. After that, he kills the bishop. He becomes Hyde. He kills the bishop. That's the end of Act One. And um, I'm I'm going to toot my own horn here again. That was uh, I, I think that that I was determined to make that really scary, and uh, I think I did. Uh, and again, Hasselhoff, come on, man, you're not quite doing it because like he he's stabbing him, and he goes hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. What I did was I was uh, repeatedly stabbing him, and then going like this. Uh, with uh, wide, scary eyes. So uh, there you go. Uh, somebody send me a Tony Award. Uh, it's long overdue. It's a very self-serving episode. Intermission. Come on back. The Act Two opener is a song called "Murder, <coughs> Murder <coughs> in the Night." Man, Murder, <coughs> Murder. Oh my fright, man. Uh, those aren't the words, but you know what I mean. And it gives the ensemble a second moment after facade. You know, we get the ensemble back in there. The choreographer did this cool thing because um, it's the, the song is about all of the townspeople are uh, bl- uh, scared about the murders in town. Oh, did you hear about this murder? Just like this other murder? Oh, holy shit, this is very frightening. And uh, they're, so they're, they're afraid. There's a uh, talk of murder in the streets. Just like that summer of uh, 1969 in Los Angeles when the, the Manson, uh, well, yeah. So, uh, but the choreographer when we did it had this idea uh, that was really, uh, I thought, cool. Where they, she had me uh, blend in with the others. Like they had all these traffic patterns because it was like such a huge ensemble. And I would like, uh, you would just sort of, it would be a little Easter egg. You'd see me sort of uh, stalking around with uh, the rest of the ensemble. Now, if you're staging Jekyll and Hyde, you want these murders to be cool. <laughs> it's very easy for them to be lame. Uh, and I think our murders were kind of lame. I'm not going to lie. You want to have some cool-looking murders. So do, uh, give me a, uh, do me a favor and do that. Um, wh- the, one of the lyrics here, too, when they're talking about uh, the, the murders in town, they say, He hates the upper class. He must be on his ass. That's stupid. I mean, we're talking about London in the late 19th century, right? Like, that's like so that's something that somebody would say, like that something uh, an American right-wing ideologue would have said on Crossfire in the mid-90s. And it's just, ah, it's these people collecting welfare that hate the rich. 
That's it's it's. I don't think it. I don't know if the class thing worked that way. But Leslie Briscus is from the UK, so why doesn't he know better? Uh, it's because he's bad at his job. Leslie Briscus was bad at his job. Rest in peace, Leslie Briscus. I'm sorry, and uh, I apologize to the Leslie Briscus estate for this entire podcast. When you do a show, you have to do a fight call sometimes ahead of time where it's just like, oh, just in an abundance of caution. That's my least favorite phrase, by the way. And the pandemic uh, made everybody say that. And I, I wanted to stab my eyeballs every time I heard it. In an abundance, out of an abundance of caution, you have to do a fight call, meaning you just basically uh, do the fight before the show so that you get a lot of practice so nobody gets hurt. Um, we had to do that for this show, but the, 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 first of all, it's tedious, and second of all, <laughs> it's unnecessary in a lot of cases here of uh, these fights. Uh, like the lady, when I killed the lady, I forget what her name is, Lady Something. Um, and in this, he, he just sort of chokes her with her, her pearls like by pulling them back. I rammed the pearls down this lady's throat, and so we had to uh, practice that. And that was my dear friend, Michelle. She's my favorite human being on the planet. She's still around uh, to this very... <laughs> yeah, she's still around uh, and my friend to this very day. Came to my 40th birthday party. How's it going, Michelle? Um, the second act is a big fucking drag. There is some, you know... It is an inactive second act. You get the worst, most boring song, uh, Once Upon a Dream, sung by Emma... They should have cut that. They should have cut Emma altogether. We don't need Emma. Uh, the 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 lady playing Emma when we did it, she was obsessed with. Uh, after this song, she sings this little thing that goes like, "If you need me, when you need me, you know where I'll be." She thought that was the prettiest part of the whole score, and you know I can't agree with that. I don't care, uh, and I don't agree. Nothing much happens in the second act. John Utterson is still concerned. Emma is still supportive. Jekyll is still, oh, what do I do? Uh, he sings a song called What Streak of Madness. Again, very pointless, lethargic song. What streak of madness is inside of me? And then he <laughs> rhymes that with this Edward Hyde of me. Ugh. And then the two ladies sing In His Eyes. It's not a bad, like, it's, it's a good standalone song. And it's... Uh, it's good to finally have a crash boom bang there in the second act because there isn't much of one. And you know, I, I don't, uh, you longtime listeners know I don't care for too much crash boom bang like a ragtime where there's just too many goddamn big, uh, big finishes and thunderous applauses. But this is a much needed one because there's a, there's a lot of lethargy before this song. So we, we need this bam bang, crash bam, crash boom bang. Crash boom bang, by the way, is a term that I came up with um, by accident just doing this podcast. Um, I, maybe it, uh, maybe there's a better way of saying that, but when I say crash, boom, bang, I mean a song, uh, with a thunderous applause at the end because everybody's belting and then the orchestra swells like, but a song like this in his eyes, it's like, uh, I mean, maybe cause I played Jekyll. I didn't, uh, <laughs> this didn't, uh, I didn't have this, uh, this insight, but if you have a guy like David Hasselhoff playing the part, it's hard to believe, um, that these ladies, both of them are so obsessed with him and his eyes. Uh, you know, he's a funny-looking guy. Not that cool. He's kind of a whiny. And he's a science nerd. Then uh, there's a song called uh, Dangerous Game, which is in more Hallmark lyrics because they wanted this to be the hit. They seem to want this to be an S&M song. And that is, outside of the spooky scary, like that's what ties these shows together. 
there's there's some weird, I would say, uh, misguided sadomasochism elements in both of these shows. And it's insulting maybe to women, maybe to all of us. In this song, how she's kind of like into it or supposed to be into it, but also scared and like... I mean, just like Little Shop, which we'll talk about that, uh, you know, in the second uh, hour of this thing. Like, if 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 you're doing a dom sub relationship with dom sub behavior, but one of the people did not sign up for it, it's not actually dom sub. It's like called something else. And I'm not in the dom sub community, uh, but I could see how somebody who was in that community uh, trying to do it in a sex positive way might be bothered by this kind of representation or lack thereof. Do better. Jekyll and Hyde for the Dom subs out there. Hey, Dom subs, send me an email. Let me know how you feel about what I just said. So um, Lucy and Hyde act like they just had sex, but all they really did was stroke each other. And uh, it's and when it ends, it's like it, 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 there's the old musical orgasm uh, that uh, happens in Parade and happens in Pippin. And they act like, uh, and then it's like they, they walk away from each other. But it didn't even really seem to be like a stylized representation of sex. It really just seemed like two people stroking each other. And the rest of the show has been all naturalistic. So um, it's dumb. And that song is dumb. I don't like that song. Gets into The Way Back, which is not a bad song. But yeah, you know, I'm sick of this guy. I'm sick of Jekyll. I'm, and people maybe they're sick of me. I had a hard time with that high note one night. I'll tell you that. I've got to carry on. This gone. I'm gonna carry on. Had a hard time with it just then, but uh, and I, that might not even be the note. But I, I completely ate it on it one night, and tried to play it off like I was just like, oh, suffering, Jekyll, suffering with his uh, experiment. Anyway, he kills Lucy. Hyde does. Jekyll slash Hyde kills Lucy. Um, another uh, fuck up of mine. Uh, to, to show you what a amateur I am. Uh, there was one night where I could not get the night out of the knife out of my coat pocket, and uh, I tried. Oh, did I try? Because it's uh, there were some uh, musical bars leading up to this before I'm supposed to kill this woman, and I realized this is not going to happen. I'm not going to get this knife out of my pocket. So I put my hands around her neck and strangled her. <laughs> and uh, this lady playing Lucy, boy oh boy, what a pro! She went with it. She uh, acted strangled, um, and hopefully I did not. Uh, hopefully I, I did a light touch on that fake strangle. <laughs> Woo! Anyway, confrontation is the song that comes after that. Now let's talk about it. This is the whole deal. So confrontation is a song sung by one actor but two characters, right? Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, they're on stage at the same time doing the same song. How's that even possible, Chris? I thought you just said they were the same person. Well, I'll tell you. Usually, traditionally, in the original and in the Hasselhoff, they do it with hair and lights. The actor makes one side of his hair long and stringy and the other side of his hair slicked back. And he turns to one side profile as Jekyll and reaches out with his uh, downstage hand uh, going, all that you are is a face in the mirror. I close my eyes and you'll disappear. And then it's a switch. The lights turn red and evil. And then his head turns around and he reaches with his other arm, going the other way. And his hair is long. And he goes, I am what you face when you face in the mirror. As long as you live, I will still be here. This is the last time I'm going to brag about my performance as Jekyll and Hyde. Um, my thing was better. <laughs> And uh, I think 
I think, and I, and I, because the director told me as much, uh, and please, please, guys, bear with me. I am self-deprecating, self-defeating, uh, which maybe is just a mask for how much I love myself, and I never speak well of myself. I'm going to do it one more time, I promise. Um, I think that I, it was more interesting. Uh, like, when I did it in my audition, uh, the director told me that he'd never seen it like that before and that it was a, re- it was a revelation. <laughs> And I think uh, I it, it it's more just uh, it's not hair dependent, uh, where it just sort of I, I I was able to practice it so it was it really felt like uh, something entering and exiting my body over and over again, and uh, I thought it was good. There was no uh, video evidence of this, by the way. Um, nobody filmed this musical when I did it. It's gone. It's like street art. Um, Constantine Margulis in the 2013 revival. Uh, I never saw that because I was dealing with uh, the come down from doing the show still, and I actually had an embargo on even listening to it because I thought it would make me too sad. And even watching it today, I was wary. I was like, "Do I really want to do this? Is this going to bring up feelings? I'm feeling a little vulnerable right now." It was fine. Uh, all that really came across was that this is a bad musical, and uh, I did think like, "Oh yeah, I remember that." Uh, on certain parts of the score. But uh, Constantine, they did a thing I heard where the song Confrontation was just uh, a mirror. He was singing into a mirror where it was like a video of himself as Hyde. And boo, that's uh, that's too easy. Go fuck yourself. Uh, the Wedding is the last scene. Now, here's the deal. We changed the ending. The director... An eccentric millionaire uh, who ran this theater company. This was his passion project. He, uh... <laughs> so the actual, the original ending is that uh, Jekyll and Emma have this wedding. And then he's like, oh, I hope I can keep it together. But then he turns into Edward Hyde and, uh, like, kills a dude. And then almost kills Emma. And Emma's like, no, I know, yeah, I know you love me. You're in there somewhere. And then he's like, kill me, kill me. John Utterson, kill me. And then John Utterson, I guess, like, won't do it, but then he runs into the dude's knife and kills himself. Now, uh, this director wanted to make the show um, <laughs> autobiographical for himself. And I don't know exactly what that means. He he resonated with the show, and I guess certain thing happened in his life. He decided that uh, Jekyll should kill Emma. Emma should die before he dies. So that's what we did which I believe is a flagrant violation of the terms of the Musical Theater International Contract. But uh, that was 2012. I imagine there is a statute of limitation on such things. So uh, very weird. If you were in the audience of that show and you were a Jekyll and Hyde head and that happened at the end, that must have been jarring. I should say also, I don't know how anyone who plays Jekyll and Hyde is able to show up in that wedding scene directly after the confrontation looking on any level like you're dolled up ready to get married like that was fucked because i that took a lot out of me i mean i already i i'm a big sweater anyway but at the end of uh confrontation you know i felt like i had just uh finished an eight-day acid trip and done you know uh sprinted 50 laps around a football field and so having to like put on a cummerbund and look nice i i don't think i did look nice um and watching it today, what a terrible rushed ending this musical has. It's like he dies and then the music goes do 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 curtain. There's no like postscript or falling action or anything. So yeah. 
this concludes uh, our talk about Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, landmark moment in my youth, being in this thing. Uh, not a good musical. Not a good musical. Uh, I got through the whole first half of this podcast without using the restroom once. I'm going to go do that now. And when I come back, we're going to talk about Little Shop. Little Shop of Horrors. <laughs> little Shop of Terrors. Hang on. Come, 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 a Little Shop. Here we go. We're back into it. So here's the thing, guys. Um, I don't love Little Shop of Horrors. I never, you know, it was never one of my favorites. But talking about it now after Jekyll and Hyde, uh, I, I'm feeling warm towards it. I, uh, I like it uh, a lot better than Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, so this is going to be, I think I'm going to have a nice soft touch on Little Shop of Horrors. Now, a lot of people, this is their favorite. And I think that it's the favorite of a lot of non-musical theater people. And, uh, you know, I can't agree. I, I, I think that it's, uh, it's fun. I like the movie a lot. I will tell you that I like the 1986 Frank Oz film quite a bit. Uh, but uh, I don't know. There's something that doesn't quite connect to me, and let's explore what that is. Um, so, the gentlemen that we're talking about here, the writers of Little Shop of Horrors, are Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. Let's take them one at a time here. Alan Menken uh, is an egot. He egotted. Not only did he EGOT, he is a REGOT because he also received a Razzie Award for a song from Newsies called High Times, Hard Times, sung by Anne Margaret, which uh, that's a shame. Um, I don't I'm not, I'm not uh, I've seen Newsies a couple of times in my life. I'm not a uh, big on Newsies, but uh, okay. Uh, I guess that song sucks. But you, so you know uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman because they are responsible for the Disney Renaissance, all of which happened after Little Shop of Horrors premiered. And I, I really think, you know, Alan Menken, for all of his talent and ability, I really think Howard Ashman is the guy. Howard Ashman is the reason that um, if you're a millennial, if you're my age, Howard Ashman is the reason that you love musicals, if you love them. Because he is responsible for Waking That Sleeping Beauty. Uh, ch check out uh, that documentary, by the way, on Disney+, Plus, Waking Sleeping Beauty. Now, of course, it's a documentary made and hosted by Disney, so uh, you're not going to get uh, you know, uh, anyone going on there saying that uh, Disney should be stopped or anything, but... Anyway, Howard Ashman, uh, he's great. Uh, we lost him in 1991. He uh, died of complication from AIDS. Uh, and as far as Broadway goes, or not even Broadway, actually, this is off-Broadway. This, uh, this is the one that he did. Like, this is the hit. He did a couple other ones, but um, uh, much like Lin-Manuel Miranda, unfortunately... He did a he had a big hit, and then he became Disney's uh, slave, where he just does things for Disney. And you know, thank goodness, thank goodness he did, because we did end up with uh, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Only part of Aladdin. He died before he finished Aladdin. <clears throat> so yeah, um, Howard Ashman is the Disney Renaissance. He wrote the book and lyrics to this. He wrote the book and lyrics to Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aspects of Aladdin. Uh, apparently did some drafts on parts of the, the other, the next two, Lion King and Pocahontas. I mean, so when he died, that renaissance ended, right? Now, I know people like the Lion King. Okay, 
more power to you. I liked it when I was 10. But uh, Lion King is not very good. Sorry. It's not very good. <laughs> uh, it's not as good as those uh, ones we talked about before. I mean, uh, Beauty and the Beast got nominated for a fucking Oscar. And not that the Oscars mean anything. But this is also where Disney took over. for Where, where, where musical theater was, uh, everyone said it was dead in the 90s. Until Rent came along. Uh, but so, the, you know, all of the best musicals were happening in Disney movies. And it seemed like there was one every year around Christmas time, and it was an event. You'd go to it. We'd go to the Third Street Promenade in my town, uh, or near my town, Santa Monica. So, uh, 1977, Howard Ashman meets Alan Menken, and they team up to write something called Kurt Vonnegut's God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. Uh, this is a little... He's got his... Uh, so, uh, Ashman has his own little company of ragtag theater kids uh, doing these things. Uh, that show has good reviews, doesn't really sell any tickets. So then they try to adapt the Roger Corman B-movie Little Shop of Horrors. Which, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this thing. The, the movie upon which the musical is based. It's really fun to watch, uh, especially... If you're a Los Angeles person, because I enjoy watching low-budget movies that are shot in Los Angeles in different eras. This is from 1960, because you feel like you're in a time machine. It doesn't seem like a managed, uh, dressed-up set, and it's like, oh wow, that's what that street looked like in 1960. This is also, of course, uh, is the film debut of Jack Nicholson, and I uh, would go so far to say he's the best part of it. He's got a very short scene, and then he's out of there, but uh, he's great. Jack Nicholson is hilarious as the uh, the masochistic uh, dental patient. So um, here's what Howard ha here's what Howard Ashman said about uh, his musical uh, Little Shop of Horrors. "Quote: The show satirizes many things: science fiction, B movies, musical comedy itself, and even the Faust legend." Ooh, yeah. Um, Seymour, of course, makes a Faustian deal with the devil. No, with a plant. Is the plant the devil? No. Apparently it's an alien. Uh, they, they, they decided that in the, in the film version, that it was a mean green mother from out of, outer space all along. It wasn't just, you know, a plant that eats people. Little Shop of Horrors at the time was the highest grossing off-Broadway show in history. It did not make it to Broadway until 2003. Isn't that weird? Nothing on Broadway until 2003 for Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, having started in 1981... Right? That's when it came out on Broadway? 81? 82? Let's say 82. Shit. Should have written that down. That 2003 production, um, I don't have the cast uh, written down in front of me. Oh, well, uh, what's that guy? Not Hunter Foster. What is it? Yeah, Hunter Foster. The kid from fucking Urinetown. Is that his name? Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think it is Hunter Foster. If I'm wrong, God help me. I get Hunter Foster and Fisher Stevens mixed up all the time. But anyway, uh, one of the replacements for Seymour was a gentleman named Joey Fatone from NSYNC. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound like it would have been very good. Uh, Cameron McIntosh, of course, took this fucking thing under his wing eventually. He took it to the West End. Uh, like I said, there's a film in 1986 directed by Frank Oz. That guy knows how to put on a good film, man. Um, I like uh, nearly every film by Frank Oz. This is his first non-Henson, non-Jim Henson production. So yeah, he's the voice of his piggy. He's the voice of Yoda. He was early to the Muppets and Sesame Street. Um, and you know, uh, you know his voice when you hear it. 
that's that's why Yoda and Miss Piggy kind of sound the same. <laughs> um, and obviously he knows a lot about puppets, so they're like, hey, director, puppeteer, this is a no-brainer. He should direct Little Shop of Horrors. Here we go. Uh, the show's been revived a few times with uh, Jonathan Groff in 2019, and now they were going to make another film of it with Taron Edgerton. But let me tell you something. Jonathan Groff and Taron Edgerton, the whole point of Seymour is that he's this fucking, you know, nerd. And they were going to have Scarlett Johansson as Audrey. Like, it's, do, really, really, do we need to have beautiful fucking people play the parts of the nerds? Do I need to get into a whole Harvey Picar thing on this, like where he got mad when he saw Revenge of the Nerds? Like, come on, man. Let's cast some actual uh, people that look like they could be outcasts. Um, the Guardian uh, called this thing... I don't have... Uh, what did they call it? Um, they, they said this is the musical comedy our climate-denying age denies. I think... I, I found that annoying when I read it, but I... I, I I, I do kind of like it, but not in the way that I think that this article is trying to use that analogy. I think that they're trying to say that the carnage of the plant is nature's revenge or some kind of shit because it's a plant and it's green. But I think, you know, it's more like the plant is human progress and you have to keep feeding it and there's no end in sight and it's eventually going to eat you alive and uh, destroy the earth. Uh, that's a, maybe a better way to look at it, but also you don't need to look at it that way. Here's the thing! Attempts to mine Little Shop of Horrors for deeper meaning are doomed to be pretty masturbatory because, uh, none of those meanings are contained herein. This is just a madcap funhouse of silliness. It's a silly, funny, madcap time. So yeah, <laughs> um, I saw Little Shop of Horrors you know, I pretty young, but I would say maybe even later than I should have. I may have liked it if I saw it in the days when I was enjoying uh, Disney-esque musicals. Disney-esque? Disney musicals. Anyway, I saw it in 1998 at the age of... What would that be? 14? Almost 15? And, my God, I went on a long, deep dive to figure out where that show was. Like, I knew that it happened. <laughs> And I knew that it was somewhere between the year 1997 and the year 2001. But I I looked up, I went on the, the, the I, I googled it. <laughs> I did more than google it. I looked at the all the past productions of the Pantages, all the past productions of the Amundsen, all the past productions of the now defunct Schubert Theater on the Avenue of the Stars. Because I was like, I saw this fucking thing with my dad at a big theater. It's gotta be a big fucking theater. And, and it was like, I looked at uh, Broadway tours. There were no Broadway, so it couldn't have been a Broadway tour. It must have been regional. And finally, I found out it was at the Redondo Beach Performing Arts Center. And I, the only reason I know this is because I fucking subscribed to the LA Times to get this information. So that I could look through the archives and look for like... You know, Little Shop of Horrors Theater Review 1997. Little Shop of Horrors Theater Review 1998. And then boom, there it is. Terrific. Thank Christ. And it's sad. That gets into what I was saying about my Jekyll and Hyde. It's sad how impermanent theater is for this reason. It just, it's gone. That was like a whole show that everyone was in. And uh, the, now they're, no, you, you have to break your ass to even find out it happened. Anyway... Uh, during my junior year of high school, I got cast in Little Shop of Horrors in a theater company outside of school, and I dropped out after two rehearsals. I was supposed to play Skip Snip. Who the fuck is Skip Snip? Exactly. That's why I dropped out. 
Normally, the part of Oren Scrivello, the dentist, after he dies, for spoiler alert, uh, he comes back in the second act playing multiple roles. One of these roles is Skip Snip, as someone that's like a big-time show business guy. Hey, plant. Let's, uh, you know. So, I was never actually in it. And then, uh, so yeah, Little Shop of Horrors, whatever. Uh, notes while watching. Let's get into it. And yes, the entry point for this is the film. It's a really good film. And um, the performances in this film are great. There's some wonderful uh, cameos from just about every uh, comedy icon of 1982. Uh, well, you'll, you'll see them. Now, it starts with the title song. Very catchy. Little shop, little shop of horrors. Bop, shoo, bop. You'll never stop the turn. Call a cop. Little shop of horrors. Now, this calls into question something. This is my least favorite aspect of the show, is the 50s bebop motif. And I get it. It was the 1980s. Everybody was obsessed with 1950s bebop revivalism in the 60s and the 50s, 60s. Uh, like, that was a thing. I, you know, I get it. Just like when I was coming up in the 2000s, everybody at their college had fucking 80s night. And they went back, you know. For some reason, we always looked uh, 20 years ahead and we... Uh, romanticize that time and do a, a, a reboot of it. Just like in the 90s, we all watched the, we, they did a Brady's Bun, a Brady Bunch reboot. And just like now, we have to watch the fucking, um, what's it called? The, the <laughs> what am I trying to say? The, oh God, what was it called? The Amanda Seyfried show about the lady with the blood, the lady that, uh, Scammed the people. Elizabeth Holmes. Um, we're, we're all into that shit now. Because that was uh, set in the 2000s, you know? Um, now we're looking back at that because that was 20 years earlier. This is not an ironclad theory or anything. I'm just saying. Um, I find the tone of Little Shop of Horrors to be unsettling and not in a good way. There's a weird uh, sort of silliness to it and also a darkness to it. that, And they do not feel compatible they, they feel like, uh they don't belong together. <laughs> and I get that they were adapting a silly B-movie when I first saw this. I, I guess I was disappointed at the age of 14 when I first saw it that it wasn't a legit horror musical like Sweeney Todd. Which came out four years before this in 1978. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll get into exactly what's it makes me uncomfortable. And I'm not uh, trying to cancel it to that, on that level. It's not that kind of uncomfortable. It's just like, it's it just seems off. Like, Seymour and Audrey do not seem like they belong in this story. Am I right? They seem like cutesy stock characters. And like, very horrible, <laughs> very serious things are happening to them. So, uh, singing this title song are the Urchins. They're called the Urchins. Crystal, Ronette, and Chiffon. They sing the fuck out of their songs in this movie, and usually when you see it on stage, they, you know, they 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 look like they're having so much fun. Um, but it's hard not to wonder why <laughs> these three ladies give a fuck about Seymour and this plant. And I, okay, so like logic, you're gonna hear me point out logical flaws in this. Unless you think I'm an idiot, I understand that it's not supposed to be a realistic thing. That <laughs> this is uh, supposed to be a silly fun time. Um, but so Howard Ashman's use of these three, uh, black ladies who, uh, are reminiscent of like the Phil Spector era, uh, singers of like the be my, be my babe. Look out, look out, look out. Um, like I feel like if this were made somewhere between let's say 2012 and 2021, uh, somebody would find this problematic. 
uh, I'm not saying I do, but like uh, th th it's just like the, the idea of having Sebastian be Jamaican and Little Mermaid, which was his uh, Howard Ashman's brilliant idea, is like <laughs> you know, it's like a, 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 a who cares, Chris? Who cares? It's it's not appropriation, is it? Maybe it is, but nobody cares. And let's let's move on. Um, who is this musical for? You know, I don't understand. It feels like it's for kids, but it's also intense and dark. I, I guess it takes place in the 50s, but sometimes it feels like it doesn't. Um, and the darker elements of the show, and I don't mean dark like the plant eating people. I mean dark like the abuse and the skid rowness of it all is like uh, feels very 80s to me. And uh, feels very dare program, uh, which I know, I mean, I experienced in the early 90s, but there was this idea, and it's mostly watching stuff later, is that there were these dark, evil forces hiding in the shadows in the urban areas, and that there were people doing heroin behind dumpsters and, you know, with leather jackets, with the ladies had their mascara running. You know, movies like uh, Garbage Pail Kids and Sid and Nancy. It was like, ooh, scary, scary uh, city, evil drug uh, poorness. <laughs> so, um, this the, also the urchins in this uh, started a legacy, you know, uh, unattended. Uh, like, the, the, this gets done in a lot of high schools, and there's a lot of uptight white high schoolers playing urchins and you end up hearing them say things like sing it child <laughs> there's a whole uh, uh series of things you'd see on tiktok uh along these lines now i think uh in the heights like high school versions of in the heights with like very awkward mostly white casts and private schools trying to do in the heights and i i think that uh if you did the little shop of horrors in the 90s and you had white girls playing the urchins, go ahead and upload that to social media and let's have some fun. Because it is very, there are some lines like, mm, sing it, child. That's the only example I can come up with right now. The movie stars the great Rick Moranis. Boy, oh boy, is he good in this part. Uh, born to play it. He's the nerdy dad of the millennial. If you uh, grew up in the time that I grew up in and you watched Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, and Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves. Now, he quit show business, of course. And a couple of years ago, somebody punched him in the face out on the street. Isn't that a shame? Look that up. There's an article about uh, someone punching Rick Moranis in the face. In the original cast on Broadway, or sorry, off-Broadway, however, Seymour was played by Lee Wilkoff from Assassins. Now, Rick Moranis, Lee Wilkoff, that's what I'm talking about. These are the kinds of people that should be playing Seymour. Lee Wilkoff is a, is a, is a funny-looking guy. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. He's in Assassins, of course. Original cast of Assassins playing Sam Bick. I'm going to try to kill Dick Nixon. <clears throat> Ellen Green uh, has been playing this role of Audrey her entire life. She was in the original cast. She's in the film. She reprised the role many times throughout the 80s, 90s, and today. Maybe not today. Maybe not that recently. She's sort of created the idea of Audrey. Uh, some, a lot of people, Audrey, as played by Ellen Green, is very divisive, um, unlistenable, uh, maybe mostly when she's speaking. Like she's, and a lot of people just sort of can't stand this trope in musical theater. There was a guy I worked with who uh, ran the chess department at the after school program I worked at, and he was like, you know, I don't, don't like musicals when people are like, I'm singing. <laughs> and it's it's the Adelaide uh, effect, uh, the Adelaide from Guys and Dolls. Like, 
Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors is like Adelaide on steroids. It's just, it's a Mr. Mushnick. Oh, Mr. Mushnick. That is a fabulous impression of Ellen Green, by the way. Um, maybe it isn't. I liked, I, it was better than I thought it was going to be. The best song in the show, for my money, is uh, Skid Row. It's an invigorating opening number. And it's kind of got this weird melancholy to it, but it's also fun. In the film, it's a great example of how you can do a large musical number on film without removing the theatricality of it. They have people on the street uh, that are, you know, pounding their feet like they're doing choreography and then also got close-ups. It's just really good. I think Frank Oz should have made more movie musicals. Did he? I don't know. He made Bowfinger. That's a underrated film. Uh, whimsical, weirdly sad. I was confused until recently about the term skid row. I know it's a very old term that came around in the 1700s. I think what threw me is the fact that in Los Angeles, there is a geographical neighborhood that is officially called skid row, like on Google Maps. Like you could type in skid row Los Angeles and Google Maps and they'll be like, this is this little place right here, this municipality. And it's not a row anymore. It's like skid grid. It's expanded into basically all of downtown LA and many of the surrounding neighborhoods. Um, we have over 75,000 homeless people in the city of Los Angeles. I should know. I did the homeless count in 2019. Um, that was, uh, I, I, I uh, was that 2019? Early 2020 uh, when I did it, right before the pandemic kicked off. I was feeling helpless about the state of the world. And about the non the the the, the seeming non viability of the Bernie Sanders campaign, and I thought I need to put my energy into doing something good here. And uh, I figured, what's the biggest problem in our city? Homelessness. Uh, what can I do to help uh, the homeless count? Um, and that's where you go around in cars uh, or on foot with a tally, and you tally all of the homeless people, or uh, sorry, unhoused people, or the evidence of unhoused people, and then it helps them uh, uh, plan for services. Anyway, uh, the the poverty and the skid rowness of it all of this is like a comic book. The, the whole thing is like a comic book, and I think that's why this is on me. Like maybe people are not unsettled the way that I am. I feel like I'm not a fan of comic books. Put it that way, and because I feel weird. When something serious happens in a comic book panel, because it seems like it shouldn't be happening. <laughs> like, it seems like it should just be silly. And I'm sure that'll offend some comic book nerds. You know, mea culpa, comic book nerds. It's just not for me. You know, when I read Mouse for school, I was like, what's happening? We're, there's Nazis? Um, and the, the what's his name? The, the guy that did the good trouble? Uh, John Lewis. Somebody made a graphic novel of his life. And uh, my stepson uh, could not sleep at night because he saw the, the, the people in the KKK robes and it frightened him uh, when he read that for school. So, yeah, it's like a cartoon, uh, but there's poverty and domestic abuse. So it throws me, but it could just be me. Uh, Rick Moranis is so good in that opening number on Skid Row. He's just like, I, I just want to give him a hug. And he's, I, I like his singing voice. He's not over singing. He seems very human. And I like the way that they follow him while he's walking. I love people walking and singing. That's that's why I, movie musicals are my jam, because uh, that is possible. Uh, unless you want to fuck around and do a Les Mis rotating goddamn stage where somebody can walk and not move anywhere, and you can see them from the seat do that. Uh, the only part of that song I don't like is at the end when they're like, there's gotta be a way out of skid, but a hell of a lot to get out of skid. People say that there's not a way out of skid, but believe me, I gotta get out of skid. Row! 
It's like, okay, well, we knew that row was coming eventually. Why are we not finishing the sentence? It's like, this Jesus must, Jesus must, Jesus must die. I don't like it when songs do that. Another personal taste. That's what this whole show is, though, so. I don't know. I, I don't, maybe I shouldn't keep qualifying this by saying it's just my opinion. Um, one of the good uh, cameos in this uh, is Christopher Guest. God damn it. It's so funny. That's a win. I, I, I don't even want to explain it to you. Just watch the movie. Christopher Guest's cameo in this. Every time Christopher Guest pops up in something, you forget that it's him because he's, uh, he's so fucking good at uh, disappearing into a comic character. Here's another logic thing. So they're on Skid Row, but and you know surrounded by all these winos and everything but if you put a strange and interesting plant in the window all of a sudden a bunch of fancy ladies with fur coats come in you get no window shopping business why is that happening i know it's not it shouldn't be logical we get into the song grow for me uh he sings to the thing and i used this to audition for avenue q because my book my, my book, my audition book was lacking in light musical comedy fare. I just had a bunch of fucking like very serious baritone shit, uh, Jekyll and Hyde style. Uh, and the puppetry on stage during this uh, song is very cool. I like how uh, the plant interacts with him in that song. It's, it's great. And if you watch the original film, it's really, uh, it's pretty close to the original concept. But the fact that they do that in the song, what do you want from me, blood? Ow! And then the blood and the whole thing. Uh, John Candy has an incredible seen in this another cameo uh i think that i need to investigate sctv because i know that that's where john candy and rick moranis and eugene levy and uh catherine o'hara and all these people started and uh, i've never really watched it i've seen clips from it but every time i see a little clip from it i i laugh so i need to i need to go watch me some sctv uh definitely before my time but uh there you go there's some Maxwell House product placement. That's not important. Uh, see, he goes on. A, so John Candy's a radio host, and he goes on the radio show to talk about this visual curiosity, and he brings it along. He's like, "Let me. I'm here to talk about this plant um, for a radio show." Let's think about that for a second. You done thinking? Okay, let's move on. There's a song in the show called You Never Know. They replaced it in the movie with a song called Some Fun Now, which is basically the same song, but they cut out the Mushnik intro and they changed the chorus. Maybe they did that because Vincent Gardenia, who plays Mushnik, could not sing because they also cut out Mushnik and Son. But um, it's kind of a Calypso thing, which I guess uh, Ashman and Mencken are a fan of because then sooner, uh, sooner or later they're going to do Under the Sea. Uh, Somewhere That's Green is the song that Audrey sing. It's hard to get excited about this song or to sympathize with it because it's such an exhausted trope slash cliche. And it doesn't help that the show is self-conscious that it's an exhausted cliche. The movie really helps this and rehabilitates the song by making it in a dream sequence. And in general, I think movie musicals are good for fleshing out long and boring ballads by having flashbacks, dream sequences uh, happen during them and making it like that. Like one song, Glory in Rent. Like the one... Uh, moment, the one fucking tiny stretch that is in the movie Rent that makes it uh, succeed above the stage show. And the, uh, I know Seymour is the I know Seymour is the greatest, but I'm dating a semi sadist. Now that's a laugh line, but it's weird as fuck. Isn't that weird? I don't know. Is that funny? Seems kind of oh god. It's weird. This, it's a shame also. The, the, the one part about the sequence in the movie that I don't like is that when she sings a picture out of Better Homes and Gardens magazine, like they show 
a picture out of Better Homes and Gardens magazine. A little on the nose. The movie cuts a song called Closed for Renovation. Which is fine. Who cares? Fuck it. Um, and then here comes the dentist. Oh, boy. He comes in. Oren Scrivello. He's Audrey's boyfriend. He's been talked about before. He's a bad guy. He's hitting her. Um, then he has that song, I am a dentist. The song is one joke, and then it goes on and on, uh, which is uh, unnecessary. He's the intro talking about how he's he likes to, when I was younger, just a bad little kid. My mama noticed I hurt these animals. <laughs> and then, uh, I and now I'm a dentist. And then everyone goes, ha, 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 that reminds me of my dentist. <laughs> because my dentist sometimes makes me hurt when I go to get my teeth drilled. Uh, Steve Martin, of course, is outstanding when he does it. Uh, nobody else should ever attempt this again um, because he perfected it. He's outstanding. He makes this song fun. And Frank, the way that it's filmed is just terrific. It's so good. And uh, keep an eye out for the nurse in there. The dental nurse uh, nurse is played by Miriam Margulies. And I was like, who the fuck is that? She's so familiar. Well, she played the nurse uh, oh, also a nurse, a different kind of nurse in Romeo plus Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann. Uh, and also uh, my favorite film, uh, Magnolia. She's in that opening sequence uh, with the shooting of the person through the window of the thing and the falling and the whatever. It's weird how the dentist is a comic character and also a, a real monster. It's it, And that's not impossible. Like I'm not saying uh, it's those things are incompatible. They ju- It's just incompatible here. You know, uh, I guess it's it's supposed to be funny that he's a dentist and also a sadist, but the way that he behaves towards this woman and these people, it's fucking, it's unsettling. I find it weird. I find it upsetting. Not in a good way. Like I said, they cut Mushnik and Son from the movie. It's a needless tango number. It's just a little plot point to tell you that uh, Mushnik wants to take advantage and adopt Seymour. Mushnik is an annoying character. And I don't think that that's it. I think anyone that plays him, he's oh oh guy, what's the matter with you? Oh. And even the guy that plays him in the movie is also annoying. And I think in the movie he's supposed to be more <laughs> Eastern European. I don't know what the fuck he is, but uh, the, 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 I don't I don't like Mushnik. It's it's the Trunchbull problem. Okay, this is I, I don't want I don't like looking at this person. I know I'm not supposed to like him, but I I'm sick of him. Get out of here. It's all it's very weird how. Um, sadomasochism in this, and again, I told you we'd talk about it again, it's equated with poverty and living on Skid Row. Like, oh, if only I could get out of Skid Row, I wouldn't have to date a a sadist anymore, a semi-sadist. And when he picks her up for the date, like, and he has, you got the handcuffs, and she's like, they're in my bag. It's so sad. Jesus. You know, again, S&M, Without two willing participants, it's not uh, is not allowed, and it's not S and M, and it's and the they're making they need a bad guy like a true bad guy. They need him to be a deviant, and him being into uh, BDSM is conflated with him doing it by force and making somebody do BDSM. Again, it's not my thing. This is really sounding like I'm uh, offended as a BDSM person. I'm not. So uh, I will say, though, (laughs) um, 
and I know I, I, I enjoy the, the work of Dan Savage and the podcast Savage Love. If you, I'm, I'm plugging all kinds of podcasts that already have uh, exponentially more listeners than I do. But uh, the, the whole sex positive vibe of that um, is a, it was a revelation to me when that first came out. And I do still like to listen to it from time to time. Uh, one thing that bothers me, though, um, and I guess, you know, it's, you know, you never know if pornography is made ethically. Or it's hard to know. I guess you don't, it's not right to say you'd never know, but it's hard to know. And even if, like, if you make, for instance, BDSM porn, is this getting weird? Okay. If you make BDSM porn and somebody is a submissive in that porno movie, like, can you really guarantee that that actress is into it? Or, you know, even if she's not being forced, you know, she is doing it for a financial incentive and maybe getting hurt and not wanting to get hurt, but needing the money. I don't know. Tell me if I'm wrong about that too. Uh, call, uh, give me a call. Give me an email. Uh, that's not the point of this. Let's get back to musicals. Jesus Christ. Uh, at this point, the plant starts talking and singing. Uh, there's a, there's a go get it. It's a good song. Uh, feed me, see more, feed me all night long. Uh, and there's a middle section in this that I hate, um, where Seymour just like, I don't know, I don't know, I've got so many strong reservations, should I go and perform mutilations? And it's just the pacing of it is strange because he's saying two sentences and it's taking him a long time to say them. And it's also one of those, um... Uh, Asian rhymes that uh, Stephen Sondheim talks about uh, that he did this in putting it together. There's just too many words that end in Asian, and so it's not satisfying to hear an Asian rhyme. God. Um, another line I don't care for is when he says, uh, A little nookie gonna clean up your zits. No, 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 no. Don't say that. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> Is that true, though? Do you, do your zits go away if you have a little nookie? I wonder if anybody ever pre-records the plant voice when they do this on stage. It obviously would be more stilted and feel like less of a conversation. But, uh, you know, there's always somebody credited as the plant voice and the plant puppeteer. So I wonder about that. And, uh, whatever. And the thing is, with uh, I've worked, uh, I've worked with puppets before. Actually, directly after Jekyll and Hyde, I was cast in Avenue Q, and that was boy after the fucking uh, uh, workout, the marathon of play, of doing Jekyll and Hyde to play Brian in Avenue Q, who basically wears shirts, shorts, and a t-shirt, and just sort of strolls around, being like, "Hey guys, how's it going?" And then having a lot of time just chilling backstage. It was like it was a nice uh, breather, but. You know, I do have conversations on stage with puppets. And man, if somebody is good at that, uh, making that puppet come alive, you feel like you're in a scene. And if someone is not good at it, you, you're, you feel like you're talking to a hand because the face don't understand. <laughs> and there was, I won't say who, um, there was like a couple that were really good at it. I remember watching, well, I'll say who was good at it. Um, the dude that played Princeton. So he... That I, I was watching on stage in the final scene when he's like, uh, you got to go after the things you want while you're still in your prime. And when he did the m prime, I saw him make the puppet like do the little M, the little pop prime. And I was like, fuck, 
that's like uh, really good attention to detail. And that's why when I talked to Princeton, I felt like I was talking to somebody. But then some of the others uh, were, you know, the musical theater people that learned to puppet and they didn't puppet as well. And I, it was harder. Uh, so there you go. That was a pretty obvious observation I just made. Observation is another Asian word. See how many there are? Now, um, here's a really good part of the show. Uh, I th- is, I, is it just before intermission? No, it's not. Or maybe it is. No, it's not. <laughs> um, when the dentist, when Oren Scrivello comes back, is like, you forgot your fucking purse or whatever she does. Like, And they come back and in the movie, he, he smacks her in silhouette and it's very upsetting. And then it uh, Seymour's watching it. And then Seymour and the plant have this harmony part. And it gives me chills every time. It's so fucking good. It's like... Um, and you're just like, you fuck yeah, kill that guy. He deserves to die. Um, but the, musically, it's exciting. Watching Seymour be furious after he's been this little cockboy the whole time. If you want a rationale, it isn't very hard to see. Stop and think it over, pal. The guy sure looks like plant food to me. The guy sure looks like plant food to me. The guy sure looks like plant food to me. Um, it's better with the harmony below it, certainly, and with the band. But uh, I, I really like that part. That's the high point of the show. That and the Skid Row song. And there's some more stuff coming out later. We'll talk about it. Bill Murray comes in the movie for cameo. It's great. It's a role that they created for the film, but it was actually in the original Corman film, but it's not in the stage musical. It's of a, a guy that goes to the dentist because he's into pain. And the weird thing about it in this movie is that it's not exactly sexual, <laughs> or at least at first. It's, it sort of feels like a guy that's going to get a massage. And all of, by the way, all of uh, Bill Murray's lines are improvised. And then, like, when the drill comes out, he gets all manic, and he seems to kind of, like, come while it's happening. It's really it's weird. It's off-putting. This musical's off-putting, guys. And the, But the, what's interesting uh, is that it proves that Oren Scrivello, DDS, he, he's actually not capable of being an ethical, sex-positive sadist because he does not like it when the person enjoys the pain. He kicks Bill Murray out of his office. He's like, you fucking freak. And then he makes sure, hey, are you scared of this? Good, come into my chair. Uh, maybe he just needs to find a submissive person that's like a better actor and can pretend that they don't like it. I don't know. But it doesn't matter because he's about to die. Song uh, cut from the film called uh, Now, parentheses, it's just the gas. It's a good song. They should have left it in the movie. Um, and then the whole thing about the ethical dilemma that Seymour sings is fun. And he says, you can finish him with simple laissez-faire. I like that. It's kind of satisfying. Um, I think they added the dialogue right before he dies in the movie. Um, and I do like that. It's very satisfying when he says, what I ever do to you? And he says, it's not what you did to me. It's what you did to her. Her? And he's like, oh, her. And then he dies. Because it's kind of telling the guy, this is why you're dying. And then it's like, oh, there you go. It's better than him just thinking, oh, this there was this happening. Uh, I, For some reason, this guy wouldn't help me take the mask, uh, gas mask off. And I died. Uh, We get into Suddenly Seymour, which is kind of the hit from the show. This is where Ellen Green's voice uh, does some weird shit. uh, And I'm not mad at it. Like, it's good. I I, I ultimately do like Ellen Green, even though she's annoying uh, with the voice and everything. This is speaking voice. But here it's like she's starts belting like, like, uh, but like really intensely, really fucking intense. 
Um, and I've sung the show with two different women at work, singing waiter job. And, you know, I guess my problem with this song is that the name Seymour is in it. And Seymour is just a weird name. Uh, if you're the guy singing this song, uh, you know, you, you're not really the center of attention. So you have to uh, put your, your own uh, spotlight uh, aside. Uh, you, you, you know, it's, it's about supporting the lady, which is what the song is about. So it's apropos. It's, you, you don't have the uh, flashiness that, um, that, that uh, Audrey has when you sing it. Now, I saw Little Shop of Horrors at the Pasadena Playhouse in 2019 with my stepson. And uh, MJ Rodriguez played Audrey. And, uh, you know, I, how do we talk about this without uh, stepping in shit? Uh, MJ Rodriguez did an amazing job. And MJ Rodriguez is a very talented trans actress um, from the movie, uh, sorry, the show Pose and a lot of other things. Like she's popping up in all kinds of things before. And um, suddenly Seymour particularly was extremely moving when I saw this. And also, they, they, it was a sort of a guy, there was a Latino kid with real curly hair playing Seymour. And something about, I don't know, maybe it's the, the movie in the original version, the fact that there's all these, uh, oh, gee, gee golly, Willikers, uh, you know, uh, space age white people in Skid Row having this experience. But something about Audrey and Seymour. You know, one being a trans actress and one being a person of color. I mean, both people of color, like singing this song, but really being outcasts in society, living this horrible life, and then like finding each other and having this sweet moment. It was the first time I really liked Suddenly Seymour. That's all I'm going to say. Did I step in shit talking about that? Oh, no, that's not what I thought I was going to step in shit about. So if I stepped in shit uh, already, then I'm about to really step in shit. Because I have a question um, about trans actresses when they sing in musicals. Now, I don't know what happens um, when... And, and you, I, I understand that there's a... <laughs> God. Regardless of whether you uh, have top or bottom surgery or take hormones, you're still... Uh, you know, a trans person and you could be identify however you want to identify. I'm wondering if the hormones change um, the voice. I'm one, uh, be, I, I, it doesn't seem like in a lot of cases it does. And I wonder, like it's totally cool. Like MJ Rodriguez completely reads as Audrey and like, uh, look, what I'm trying to say is the falsetto. That's all I'm talking about. Just on a technical level. I know uh, as a, ma a person born with male hormones, it is very hard for me to sing for a long time in falsetto. And I just wonder if it's less hard if you've taken hormones or if it is not less hard and what the workaround is on that. I don't know. You change the key. I don't know. I'd, I'd love to know. I'm asking curiously. But if you uh, don't want to do the uh, what kind of labor is it again that they don't that people uh, don't want to do the emotional labor. Uh, of explaining it to me, then don't send me an email. But if you do, if you feel like uh, you have emotional labor in you, let me know uh, the answer to my question there. Supper Time uh, is a song this plant sings. And, okay, this is one of my other favorite moments of the show. It is legit scary, the way that that music sounds. And I think what helps it is that it deviates from the 50s bebop aesthetic. It sounds like The Exorcist, the theme to The Exorcist. 
And the way that it under is uh, an undercurrent under the scene with Mushnik, where Mushnik tells him he saw him chop someone up. There's a lot of dread and suspense in that moment. Uh, I really like that scene, and I really like that song, specifically the um, orchestration of it. The you know what I'm talking about? The he's got your number now. Uh, the movie changed it so Mushnik doesn't like go inside the plant, um, and I think that's a mistake because the, in the show uh, after so the first human victim that wasn't just blood from his finger was the dentist because so it's like this dentist is an asshole and he doesn't even have to actually murder him he just has to like not help him not die, and then the next person that he feeds to the plant is Mushnik and the way that it works on stage is Mushnik is going to take him to the police and report him. Or, but he tries to extort him, maybe. And then um, he's saying, uh, he extorts him by saying, well, you get out of town and then I'll just give me control of the plant. And he says, show me uh, what I'm supposed to do. I've had to feed the plant. It's like, oh, I keep the food inside of it. Or no, what is it? Not the food. Jesus Christ. There's, he keeps, uh, I, it's something he keeps inside the plant. So go inside and get it. Really? Inside the plant? Okay. And then he walks inside and the plant eats him. So it's actually, it's more, it's like another step in the direction of committing murder, basically. Because it's like, they, they get worse and worse each time. And in the movie, they just have uh, this conversation happen in front of the plant. And it's the same thing. It's like, Seymour doesn't say, hey, look out. And the plant just eats him. But I think it's better if you, it's a, more of a progression there. Also, when he's trying to say, I chopped him up, but I didn't kill him. Who does that remind you of? That's right, Robert Durst. If you watched uh, The Jinx, that was his defense that uh, got him acquitted. I chopped him up, but I didn't kill him. He killed himself, and then I chopped him up. Did anybody believe that? I guess uh, uh, 12 uh, jurors believed it. Holy shit. Uh, a couple of songs that are not in the movie, but are in the show that are needless are Call Back in the Morning and The Meek Shall Inherit. The Meek, the Meek Shall Inherit specifically is a bad song. And that's where, like I said, Oren Scrivello plays three different roles. I want to make a pitch to the character of Seymour here. I have come up with a nonviolent alternative to uh, feeding Audrey 2. Um, and I, l let me know what you guys think of this. I, I think this is going to work really well. So let's keep in mind, Audrey 2 makes it very clear, must be human and it must be fresh. Okay. Those are the only, uh, caveats. He wants, he needs blood, but it's gotta be human. And it's gotta be fresh. Now, when I was, uh, a drug addict and alcoholic, uh, down on my luck, there was such a thing as the blood slash plasma bank where you could go and I did this maybe three or four times and you could uh, g give these people some of some of your blood and they give you 30 bucks, which, you know, if you were me, uh, you would spend uh, 20 of that on a gram of weed and then you'd spend four of that on two 40 ounce bottles of malt liquor and then you'd spend the last five or six on a pack of cigarettes. That was the way that worked. That was where those $30 went. Now, um, with all of their success, with, you know, they're blowing up and everybody loves the Audrey 2 plant, they could certainly pay more than $30, which is what that place pays. So couldn't you do that? That, that would be more than enough blood. Because when I went to these plasma banks, they were uh, very busy. Like I would often spend the afternoon there waiting my turn. There's a lot of people there waiting to get that 30 bucks. And you're in the middle of Skid Row. It'd be really easy to get that blood. 
That's all I'm saying. That's what he should have done. He could have not killed anybody. And the plant could have kept growing. Uh, but as we learned from the ending of the show, you know, the plant's actual idea is world domination. Uh, so we actually don't want the plant to keep growing. But okay, but if, if using Seymour's logic that, oh my, I need to keep the plant alive and the only thing that keeps it alive is whatever. So the ending, uh, they, they changed the ending in the film. They actually filmed an ending that was just like it was on stage and then it completely bummed out the test audiences in San Jose. Hey, fuck you, San Jose. <laughs> I'm going to San Jose tomorrow uh, to have Thanksgiving at my sister's house. San Jose is not my favorite city. I'm uh, I'm not going to lie. I enjoy going up there because of the uh, warm familial ties, but I would not spend any time in that city were there not uh, a sister, a brother-in-law, and two nephews uh, inhabiting it. So um, anyway, so the the audience hated that uh, basically Audrey dies and then Seymour dies. So they changed the ending at the last minute. They reshot the ending. And in fact, uh, because Paul Dooley was no longer available, he had a small walk-on part in that ending. He couldn't be in it anymore. They had to replace him with Jim Belushi. But guess what I watched yesterday? The director's cut with the original ending. I've never seen it before. And wow, yeah. So the, keeping the death of the romantic leads in there, it they, they really... Um, it, it, I, I can see why it tested weird. Because... First of all, I guess it's weird to kill the leads. It's it's jarring. And, you know, it's not just... You, the musical does force you to care about these fucking people instead of just being pure camp. Like, you do have these sweet moments where you care about Audrey and Seymour, and then they do die. Her Like, Audrey's martyrdom is a bummer. You know, which I blame on the even uneven tone of the whole thing. The somewhere that's green reprise, and then that, that joke, uh, you see that coming a mile away. That she's going to go somewhere that's green and that's inside the plant. Ha ha, great. Um, but yeah, having them die is, is, is brutal. And you know, normally I would be in favor of something like that. Uh, but I guess ultimately in this case, I don't care. Um, when my father was alive, I watched The Big Lebowski with him. I wanted to show him one of my favorite movies, The Big Lebowski at the time. And he liked it a whole lot. But then his take on it was that Donnie shouldn't have died. He thought that that was the flaw. I, people don't like uh, the nice characters to die in a movie. Well, you know, get used to it, people. That's life. Uh, they had a song for the movie called Mean Green Mother from Outer Space and I'm Bad. Uh, stupid. We find out it's from Outer Space. Which I guess we could have assumed because it appeared uh, during a total eclipse of the sun out of nowhere. I like the song, the original finale, that is in the director's cut of the movie and on stage. The subsequent to the events we just have witnessed. One of those urchins, by the way, was not available for... Uh, they, they did a reshoot. Anyway. Um, and then... They may offer you fortune and fame. Acclaim. But whatever they offer you, don't feed the plants. They have a really cool sequence in the director's cut that's basically in a disaster movie. And it was apparently a huge fucking waste of money that they didn't end up using it in the theatrical version. Because this was, up until that point, the most expensive film that Warner Brothers had ever made. And it's not a, everyone, you know, it's not an icon. It doesn't live on in everyone's memory. I like it. I don't know why people aren't more into, I guess people just don't like the musical in general. Or musicals in general. We're here to try to change that. Uh, here's another logical problem um 
what happens uh, when these plants run out of humans? I understand that they, they're doing world domination and Audrey 2 gets cut up into little pieces and gets sold out in, in all kinds of people's living rooms and studies. But um, hopefully a few of these plants have the foresight to start farming and breeding these humans getting uh, so they can keep, uh, <laughs> keep their food. Going. Otherwise, they're just going to eat every human and then starve to death, right? It doesn't seem like uh, they're uh, spending a whole lot of time thinking about that or uh, planning a, a human farm. Uh, so anyway, um, I would like to read to you a couple of quotes here. Now that we've come to the end of Little Shop of Horrors. And this is specific to uh, when they did the revival in 2019. This is The Guardian, UK. Uh, boy, oh boy. Little Shop of Horrors is a show about how generational trauma can really mess with your sex life. Its characters enter into abusive relationships because they have never experienced any other kind. And hurt has come to feel like love. By the time they find their way to each other... Seymour has internalized violence and becomes a reluctant psychopath. And Audrey can't imagine herself as anything other than a victim. Run! Calm down. It's not that deep. Jesus Christ. What, that, that, that's, oh, people that write articles uh, need to stop writing articles. I'm making a decree right now. No more articles. Can we stop overthinking things like that? And listen, I, I'm, I'm not trying to... I, maybe I'm contradicting myself because the, the uneven element of the darkness of the show and the silliness of the show uh, is weird. But to lean that <laughs> heavily into the, uh, the, the fucking resonant psychological meths uh, under... I don't like it. Um, let's listen to a quote from Michael Mayer, who, if we remember uh, from Karaoke Hell episode... He is the villain of uh, that episode because of the way that he behaved in that documentary about the making of American Idiot called Broadway Idiot. He directed it in 2019 because, of course, he did because they everyone needs him to direct everything. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, here's what Michael Mayer says. Quote, it resonates more than ever right now. The idea of the Faustian bargain you make for fame and success in a world where people are making a living being TikTok performers and Instagram influencers, and people are famous for being famous more than at any other time in history. It examines the dark side of the American dream, and because it's so funny and entertaining and moving, it isn't going to bum you out so much. Oh, shut up! God damn it. First of all, uh, yeah, nothing has ever examined the dark side of the American dream. So thank God uh, your revival of Little Shop of Horrors came along because that is that that is that's so fresh. The dark side of the American dream. Nobody has ever gone on that journey to get to the bottom of the dark side of the American dream. And uh, yeah, I mean, right now is where people are famous for being famous. Where were you in 2005? Asshole. Did you not see the surreal life? Um, <laughs> it's different now. It's not that people are famous for being famous. It's that everybody and nobody are famous because everybody's... Anyway, I don't like Michael Mayer. I think he's dumb. Also, he said the fact that he said the Faustian bargain, he's a, he obviously read the same quote I did from Howard Ashman and then wanted to sound smart. So fuck you, Michael Mayer. If anybody knows Michael Mayer, uh, get him to come on this podcast. I mean, why? Also, him saying that it's funny and entertaining, and it's not gonna—it's not gonna bum you out so much. I mean, 
<laughs> why doesn't it? Like, why, if it's this zany, campy goofball fest, why does it straddle the line with all these disturbing elements? I, it feels like, I have to say, it feels like it's making light of some of these things. <clears throat> like the beating up of Audrey, and it could just be the time that it's written. But I don't care, and it's past two hours, which I didn't think was going to happen today, and I fucked up everything I'm supposed to do before I move, go to San Jose. In my car tomorrow morning, I got things to do, and now I have very little time to do it. So, uh, thank you so much for listening this week. Uh, final thought, uh, if you don't like musicals, don't see Little Shop of Horrors or Jekyll and Hyde, because you will continue to not like musicals, uh, unless you are of different thoughts than I do, which is not allowed. Um, here's the quote for the end of the show. Hang on. Okay. I'd move heaven and hell to get out of pod. I do, I don't know what to get out of pod. But a hell of a lot to get out of pod. People tell me there's not a way out of pod. But believe me, I gotta get out of pod. Yes! What happened there was I bumped into my crash symbol by accident. And then I uh, decided to... Keep going with it for a nice big... Hey, crash, boom, bang, huh? Crash, boom, bang on the crash symbol. Thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Until next time. Do you really think that I would ever let you go? Do you think I'd ever set you free? See you later. <laughs> <laughs>